Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, my goodness. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, we're awake now. So the, the morning service at 9 a.m., always so awake. The afternoon service, always so asleep. I don't, I don't get it. So let's, um, let's open the word of prayer. Father God, as we um, come before you this afternoon, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, that you would close our ears to any air that I may speak. And Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would just help us as we continue to dig into this epistle, uh, Lord, from your beloved apostle, John. Father, as we continue to delve into what it means to love, he keeps peeling back that onion. We keep going deeper and deeper into the meaning of love, into the meaning of agape, unconditional love, to love as you love, Lord. I pray that you would show us what it means to love as you love. True love is found in you. And so if we want to know that love, we must seek you. Father, teach us to love as you love. Help us to understand what we're reading and learning about this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was uh, reading this story this week, uh, an illustration by uh, Jim Wilson. He tells the story about a Christian counselor. Now, this Christian counselor was uh, meeting with a man who was having difficulty with his marriage. Now, he had a great sensitivity to the man's concerns. The counselor was talking to him about uh, the struggles he was having with his wife, and he told him that the answer for this man was to love his wife, as Christ had commanded him, or at least the Apostle Paul had commanded him in Ephesians 5.25. Now, the troubled husband responded that he just couldn't love his wife like like Paul had commanded in 5.25. That was just way too much, a bridge too far. So the counselor thought about it for a while, and he said, huh, well, here's what you need to do. You need to buy your wife a house next door, and she can move into that house. The husband's like, that's ridiculous. I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? And he said, so you can practice loving your neighbor. Matthew 19, 19. At this, the man grew incensed, exclaiming to the counselor that he did not understand how much this man had grown to hate his wife. I hate her, he said. So the counselor thought about it and said that the situation, after a while, had finally grown clear to him, and that all the man needed to do was to love his enemy, as Ephesians 5:43 to 48 said. The husband had bought into a worldview of what love was. It was just a feeling. But as we've learned through the last couple of weeks and well, the last couple of months in the epistle of 1 John, love is an action. And that's what the biblical view of love is. It's not a feeling, it's an action. Now, feelings often follow our actions, and that's what it is in God's economy, right? In the biblical view of love, an action. We do the action, and the feelings will follow. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning. 1 John 4, 12 to 13 says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Remember, abides here is dwell. The word dwell 
in us and his love, which is agape. Remember here in 1 John, we're studying agape. In the Gospel of John, he uses agape and philia, which means brotherly love, like the city Philadelphia. And he interchangeably uses those words. But here he's using agape. So in in us is agape is perfected. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So John speaks to his congregation and he says, how can we know that we are saved? Well, the way that we know that we are saved is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty obvious way we know that we're saved. We've studied this before. How do you know that you're saved? You have the Holy Spirit within you. We know this from Romans chapter 8. We know this from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That makes sense. If you have and you've received Jesus Christ into your heart, technically you've received the Holy Spirit in your heart, you are now the temple of God. God now interacts with you. The God of the universe now interacts with you, and that should humble you. That should bring you to your knees. God now can speak with you and lead you. We know this, okay? We understand these things. This is the basic, or one of the basics of Christianity. But in verse 12, John begins to tackle an issue that at one point or another hits all of us. How many of you have ever wondered if there is a God? Have you ever wondered if there's a God? Raise your hand. Kind of thought of it, right? We've all thought about it at one time or another, right? I mean, it's all come to us. We've, a lot of times you've, you've, we've pondered it when something dark has happened, Right? Now, sometimes we've pondered it with something as simple as when we failed a test, right? Now, right after we did that, we lost a job, we ponder it. Whenever we do it, we ponder it. Remember in college, I would do that after I failed major exams. I'd come home, I'd sit on my bunk, and I would think about, is there a God, right? We would do that. Sometimes, and some people to think about, is there a God, for the simplest of reasons. They just struggle. They can't see any way out. They can't see if there's a God. Others of us only when things hit, uh, hit the fan. Is there a God? Well, John deals with that right off the bat with his people. He says this, John six forty six in the gospel, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And in 1 Timothy 1, 17, he says, to the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, right? So in 4.12, 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. That's what he's talking about. But it matches his gospel. Not that anyone has seen the Father in 6.46, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And that's matching Paul, 1.17, to the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God. So this is a fact. This We can't see God has bothered believers since the dawn of time. God is invisible. How can we find him? How can we see him? How can we believe in this God that I cannot see? How do we find him? It comes naturally to us. We are creatures of our senses. We have five senses. We trust those senses since we were in our mother's womb. If we can't taste it, smell it, touch it, right? If we can't hear it, and if we can't see it, we don't tend to believe in it. And really, if we think about it, and a lot of us here are scientists, right? We're engineers. 
And all really science is, is an extension of our senses. We've developed all of this science, but it really just, all of our instruments, all of our tools are simply extensions of our senses. And so if science can't detect it through all of the tools that we've created, we also don't want to believe in it. And we can't sense God. We can't test God. There is no tool that can find God. And so many of us and many of our scientists don't want to believe God. And so we struggle with that. There is no audio recording. There is no photograph of God. There is no sample of God. And so how can we believe? But if you think about it, many scientists at one time believed that the world was flat and that the universe revolved around the earth. Nobody believed in black holes, and we thought cells and then protons and neutrons and electrons were all a ludicrous thought, and yet all of these things were in fact true, regardless of human beings' ability to know or to prove it at the time. Just like there are all sorts of things that are true in the universe out there beyond us, there are millions of facts that are true that we don't know and we don't understand because we can't see them. They're simply out there. We can't find them. And yet, they are true. We can't see the center of the sun. We can't touch it. We can't taste it. We can't feel it. And yet, it is there. You see, God is too large. And He exists in such a fashion in which we cannot see Him. How or why, we don't know. Scripture simply says that He does. And we as humans are understandably perplexed by this. We can't perceive with our senses or instruments. But of course, our senses and instruments are limited by our imaginations and our abilities to create them. But how do you detect a God that is so big that he is everywhere in the universe? How do you detect a God that spoke and the universe was created? How do you detect a God that is everywhere? What kind of instrument do we have that would detect him? If we can't see the center of the sun, if we can't make it onto Jupiter to measure that, and if God is there, how could we detect such a being? If we can't see other dimensions, if we can't see things that are out of phase with us, how could we detect such a God? Is he too big? Is he in another phase of life? So John goes on to help us. We do have evidence, he says, because God has interjected himself. Look, he's reached out, and we've seen this throughout Scripture and throughout history, through his prophets, his miracles, his events, his missionaries, preachers, teachers, and most of all, through his son Jesus and through his Holy Spirit. And at the end of the day, this is the way that he chooses to reach out to us. He has condescended. He has lowered himself to our level to reach out and to speak to us. We're little beings on one little tiny planet in this cosmos. And he has reached out to you and to me. Do you believe? That's what John asks. And then he begins to teach about this invisible God. He says this. In 1 John 4.16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
He's already introduced that love that God has for us through Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate visitor, right? Jesus Christ has come down to us and spoken to us and introduced God to us. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then John 4, 18 and 19, And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We know we love because he first loved us. John then switches, and he speaks about this invisible God diving into his favorite topic of love. As we saw last week, God is love. Love is not God, but God is love. He's a simple being. You're a complex being, remember? You're made up of things. God is not made up of things. If you want to know true love, you get to know God. The closer you are to God, the closer you are to love. This is how you understand and come to know true love. You become more godlike. The more godlike you are, the more loving you are. The more agape, the more you understand true agape and true philia, true brotherly love and true unconditional love. This is how you dwell in love when you dwell in God. And so he goes on to describe a bit what love means. He says, love is not fear, it's not punishment-based. So what's he teaching here? The fear of which he's talking about is described in Romans 8, 14 to 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul there is saying, look, slavery is slavery to sin. So we didn't receive a spirit of fear. We don't live in fear of of falling back into hell, of slavery and hell. That's fear. We don't have this fear-based love where we're dangling over the pit of hell like Jonathan Edwards introduced to us, this old-time preacher, where we just dangle over and we're afraid that we're going to burn in hell. That's not the kind of love that we're introduced to or the fear that we're introduced to. When you come to Jesus... When you come to God, you are now made a brother with Jesus, and you're introduced to God as Father. That's why we now call Him Father. We have a permission. We're introduced to Him in a different way. This is what John means. We love because He first loved us in 1 John 4.19. We're called to love, learn, and live into an unconditional love and a brotherly love. And this has implications for every relationship in our lives. But John starts first with our fellow believers. He says, we are called to learn. We we now have this relationship with God where we can call him Abba, Daddy, and Jesus' brother. That's the union now we have with Jesus. We're united with him in the Holy Spirit. And God now becomes daddy. And now this has implications for us. That's a deep love that Jesus has for us. And now he talks to us about how we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 4, 20-21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother with whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is commandment, this commandment we have from him 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, when he talks about brother here, there are a lot of people who take brother to mean everybody. Like everybody in the world is your brother. I don't believe that. So I do believe that the Bible teaches you to love everyone. But here, I don't think that's what John is speaking about. He's speaking about brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And here's why he's saying that. He's saying that it starts in the household of God. You must first start. This is the basics. This is 101. You must start in the household of God, loving your brother or sister in Christ. Because if you can't love those who have the Holy Spirit within them, how much, how, how are you gonna fa- how much more are you going to fail loving those who don't? You must be able to love those who have the Holy Spirit within them. You're united to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a new believer may be struggling in this area, but for a supposedly established believer, it's a very strong sign that you either aren't a believer or you're seriously backslidden. For a believer who's been walking any length of time to hate, is genuinely the opposite of love. It's to wish evil upon a person or to despise a, per- to despise a person, not simply a person made in the image of God, which is bad enough, but despising a person in which you are united in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It speaks to an inability to discern or sense Jesus in a fellow believer. An inability to understand the fundamental teachings of Jesus and the Father. It's a basic rebellion against God's nature. If you hate your fellow believer, you are living in unforgiveness towards them. Do you understand? At its core, it is the ultimate rebellion against God. Or an serious rebellion against God at least, or a serious. Colossians 3.13. He says this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. That's an unpleasant passage. I don't like to hear that. But as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do you hear that? It's at the core of what it is to be a Christian. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, he drives it home. All throughout Scripture, it is driven home. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's, in the, it's at the core of love. Notice, tenderhearted, kindness, and forgiveness, all linked to Jesus' forgiving. Bearing one another and forgiving one another. Bearing one another. I think God often puts difficult people in our lives to challenge us, to teach us. We have to learn to bear with one another, right? My wife oftentimes has to learn how to bear with me. 
I have to learn how to bear with her at times. But there are other people in the congregation of God's people that are going to annoy the heck out of you. And you have to learn how to bear with them. My, my daughter tells the story of a group of young adults in, in her church, and they were getting ready to go on a trip. And everybody was uh, volunteering to, people who had cars were volunteering to take people who didn't have cars. And one young man raised his hand and said, I have a car. And nobody raised their hand to go with them. And one of the guys was new in the church, and he said, well, I got I to get a ride. I'll go with him because he felt bad. And so he got in the car. What he didn't know is this young man had Asperger's, pretty severe. And so as they were driving up, the young man who was driving popped in Lion King, the musical, and started singing out loud to Lion King the entire four hours, all the way up, sang Lion King. The first hour, he was going nuts. The second hour, he figured, you know what, I might as well join in. So he sang Lion King for four hours. He memorized the entire chorus of Lion King. He just went with it. Sometimes you just got to go with it. You got to bear with your brother in Christ. No one else wanted to do it, but sometimes loving a brother or sister in Christ means you got to sing Lion King, even when you don't want to. So if bearing with one another and forgiving one another applies to our brothers and sisters in Jesus, how much more to our spouses, our children, our parents. Loving, as I've said before, is an action, not a feeling. When you act in this manner, love and feelings, excuse me, feelings are often going to follow. But you have to do these things whether or not you feel it. That means when my spouse or brother or sister has really blown it, I mean really irked me, really even hurt me, I have to do it whether I feel like it or not. Now you can imagine me, I probably don't do things to irk my wife, but she does things to irk me. I got a collar, right? I don't. You could talk to her. She might say, I do things, but I probably don't. I'm kidding. But when we do things, we have to forgive. We have to work with one another. We've got to work through it. We've got to forgive and love, even when I don't feel like it. Romantic feelings are going to come and go. Your feelings for your kids are going to come and go your feelings for your brothers and sisters and parents and others. But you've got to plug away. And sometimes those wounds are going to be deep, and you've got to bear with one another and forgive. And sometimes forgiveness is going to go minute by minute. You're going to have to work at it. It's a process. And then that minute by minute is going to eventually come into 10 minutes by 10 minutes, and then hour by hour, and then day by day, and then week by week. And then eventually you're going to work it into month to month and then year to year. And then finally you will have forgiven and it'll be gone. It's a process. Sometimes those wounds are deep and they take a long time to heal. But you've got to keep on working at it to get over it. Because if you don't, 
bitterness sinks in. And hatred and bitterness are toxic to the soul and cancerous to the body of Christ. It damages you and everyone around you. It breaks up marriages and the bonds between the parent and child and brother and sister and best friends. It destroys offices and businesses. It tears apart countries. It leads to untold evil. It's simply not worth hanging on to. So today, if you find yourself in the grip of hatred, resolve to give it to God and experience the freedom that's found in forgiveness. Come to me or Pastor Mike for prayer or the prayer team. Just give it up. But for the rest of you, you are called to move into an ever deeper life of love. And that's what these verses are doing. They're asking you to pursue a holy God and to learn how to love like God. You're never going to love as God, but it's asking you to keep on pursuing that love, to become more and more God-like, not just in the confines of the church. This is where we start practicing it, but in the confines of your family, and then to take that love and turn it outwards into the world and to begin practicing it out there to begin putting it into uh, practice in the community, making a difference for Jesus out there. Have you thought about how to do that? Have you thought about ways in which you can make a difference in the community? Because as you begin to love as Jesus, it's going to dramatically impact your relationships with your neighbors, with the poor, with the teams you coach, in your businesses, with everyone you come in touch with. As you transform and become more and more like God, you will become more and more the light of the world to which you are called to be. And the more and more you will cease to care about the things of this world and grow to be concerned about the things of God. And it turns out that those things are his people, his creation, and his word, but his word It teaches us about relationship. And creation is a thing that we will rule over as the people of God in relationship. And this is why relationship is central to the faith. And the primary building block of relationship is love. And that's what we are called to be about. Amen?